footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares. And another episode of your favorite storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. We have another tale for you this week. A tale of murder and revenge with a supernatural twist called The Screaming Skull by F. Marion Crawford. It has one of my favorite opening lines ever. Pulls you right in by the teeth, you could say, and pretty much stalks you the entire story. I hope you enjoy it. As usual, I forgot how long the story is and had to break it up into sections. So there are three parts to The Screaming Skull. I'll put it up as one long story on YouTube as soon as we finish. I know people get a little impatient. So if you want to hear some more Halloween stories, you can go back to previous episodes, such as um, episode 74 called Witch, Episodes 51 and 52 called Halloween Games and Smashing Roxy. If you're looking something along the lines of more like gothic witchy ghost story, look at episode number 34 called Sacrifice. If you're looking for something more carnival, there's episode 41 called Tainted Lady. They're all pretty disturbing and I consider them worthy of being strung up on the Halloween tree right next to that skeleton you have on yours. <laughs> okay, but back to the screaming skull. Do you hear the wind outside blowing about? Perhaps that's the bones of your home moaning as they settle into place. Or perhaps it isn't the bones of your home, but the bones of something hidden in the walls, something that wants to be found. And take care my listeners, for if you don't find that which wants to be found, it will find you. Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Screaming Skull by F. Marion Crawford Narrated by Mav Sky I have often heard it scream. No, I am not nervous. I am not imaginative. And I never believed in ghosts. Unless that thing is one. Whatever it is, it hates me almost as much as it hated Luke Pratt. And it screams at me. If I were you, I would never tell ugly stories about ingenious ways of killing people. For you never can tell but that someone at the table may be tired of his or her nearest and dearest. I have always blamed myself for Mrs. Pratt's death, and I suppose I was responsible for it in a way. Though heaven knows I never wished her anything but long life and happiness. If I had not told that story, she might be alive yet. 
That is why the thing screams at me, I fancy. She was a good little woman with a sweet temper, all things considered, and a nice, gentle voice. But I remember hearing her shriek once when she thought her little boy was killed by a pistol that went off, though everyone was sure that it was not loaded. It was the same scream, exactly the same, with a sort of rising quaver at the end. Do you know what I mean? Unmistakable. The truth is, I had not realized that the doctor and his wife were not on good terms. They used to bicker a bit now and then when I was here, and I often noticed that little Mrs. Pratt got very red and bit her lip hard to keep her temper while Luke grew pale and said the most offensive things. He was that sort when he was in the nursery, I remember, and afterward at school. He was my cousin, you know. That is how I came by this house. After he died, and his boy Charlie was killed in South Africa, there were no relations left. Yes, it's a pretty little property, just the sort of thing for an old sailor like me who is taken to gardening. One always remembers one's mistakes much more vividly than one's cleverest things, doesn't one? I've often noticed it. I was dining with the Pratts one night when I told them the story that afterwards made so much difference. It was a wet night in November, and the sea was moaning. Hush, if you don't speak, you will hear it now. Do you hear the tide? Gloomy sound, isn't it? Sometimes, about this time of year. Hello, there it is again. Don't be frightened, man, it won't eat you. It's only a noise, after all. But I'm glad you've heard it, because there are always people who think it's the wind, or my imagination, or something. You won't hear it again tonight, I fancy, for it doesn't often come more than once. Yes, that's right. Put another stick on the fire, and a little more stuff into that weak mixture you're so fond of. Do you remember old Blanklot, the carpenter, on that German ship that picked us up when the Klontarf went to the bottom? We were hove to in a howling gale one night, snug as you please, with no land within 500 miles, and the ship coming up and falling off as regularly as clockwork. Biddy to bore, Beebles ashore, tis night, boys, old Blacklot sang out as he went off to his quarters with the sailmaker. I often think of that, now that I'm ashore for good and all. Ah, yes, it was on a night like this, when I was at home for a spell, waiting to take the Olympia out on her first trip. It was on the next voyage that she broke the record, you remember. But that dates it. Ninety-two was a year, early in November. The weather was dirty, Pratt was out of temper, and the dinner was bad, very bad indeed, which didn't improve matters, and cold, which made it worse. The poor little lady was very unhappy about it, and insisted on making a Welsh rarebit on the table to counteract the raw turnips and the half-boiled mutton. Pratt must have had a hard day. Perhaps he had lost a patient. At all events, he was in a nasty temper, 
My wife is trying to poison me, you see, he said. She'll succeed someday. I saw that she was hurt, and I made believe to laugh and said that Mrs. Pratt was much too clever to get rid of her husband in such a simple way. And then I began to tell them about Japanese tricks with spun glass and chopped horsehair and the like. Pratt was a doctor and knew a lot more than I did about such things. But that only put me on my mettle. And I told a story about a woman in Ireland who did for three husbands before anyone suspected foul play. Did you never hear that tale? The fourth husband managed to keep awake and caught her. And she was hanged. How did she do it? Hmm, she drugged them and poured melted lead into their ears through a little horned funnel when they were asleep. No, 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 that's the wind whistling. It's backing up to the southward again. I can tell by the sound. Besides, the other thing doesn't often come more than once in an evening, even at this time of year, when it happened. Yes, it was in November. Poor Mrs. Pratt died suddenly in her bed not long after I dined here. I can fix the date because I got the news in New York by the steamer that followed the Olympia when I took her out on her first trip. You had the Leofric the same year? Yes, I remember. What a pair of old buffers we are coming to be, you and I. Nearly fifty years since we were apprentices together on the Clontarf. Shall you ever forget old Blanclot? Billy de Boer, Beebles ashore, boys. <laughs> Take a little more with all that water. It's the old hoost camp I found in the cellar when this house came to me. The same I brought Luke from Amsterdam five and twenty years ago. He had never touched a drop of it. Perhaps he's sorry now. Poor old fellow. Where did I leave off? I told you that Mrs. Pratt died suddenly. Yes. Luke must have been lonely here after she was dead, I should think. I came to see him now and then, and he looked worn and nervous, and told me that his practice was growing too heavy for him, though he wouldn't take an assistant on any account. Years went on and his son was killed in South Africa, and after that, he began to be queer. There was something about him not like other people. I believe he kept his senses and his profession to the end. There was no complaint of his having made bad mistakes in cases, or anything of that sort. But he had a look about him. Luke was a red-headed man with a pale face when he was young, and he was never stout. In middle age, he turned a sandy gray, and after his son died, he grew thinner and thinner till his head looked like a skull with parchment stretched over it very tight. And his eyes had a sort of glare in them that was very disagreeable to look at. He had an old dog that poor Mrs. Pratt had been fond of, and that used to follow her everywhere. He was a bulldog, and the sweetest tempered beast you ever saw, though he had a way of hitching his upper lip behind one of his fangs that frightened strangers a good deal. Sometimes, of an evening, Pratt and Bumble, that was the dog's name, used to sit and look at each other a long time, thinking about old times, I suppose, when Luke's wife used to sit in the chair you've got. That was always her place, and this was the doctor's, where I'm sitting, 
Bumble used to climb up by the footstool. He was old and fat by that time and could not jump much, and his teeth were getting shaky. He would look steadily at Luke, and Luke steadily at the dog, his face growing more and more like a skull with two little coals for eyes. And after about five minutes or so, though it may have been less, old Bumble would suddenly begin to shake all over. And all of a sudden, he would set up an awful howl, as if he'd been shot, and tumble out of the easy chair and trot away, and hide himself under the sideboard, and lie there making odd noises. Considering Pratt's looks in those last months, the thing is not surprising, you know. I'm not nervous or imaginative, but I can quite believe he might have sent a sensitive woman into hysterics. His head looks so much like a skull and parchment. At last I came down one day before Christmas, when my ship was in dock and I had three weeks off. Bumble was not about, and I said casually that I supposed the old dog was dead. Yes, Pratt answered and I thought there was something odd in his tone even before he went on after a little pause. I killed him, he said presently. I could not stand it any longer. I asked what it was that Luke could not stand, though I guessed well enough. He had a way of sitting in her chair and glaring at me and then howling. Luke shivered a little. He didn't suffer at all, poor old Bumble. He went on in a hurry, as if he thought I might imagine he had been cruel. I put dionine in his drink to make him sleep soundly, and then I chloroformed him gradually, so that he could not have felt suffocated even if he was dreaming. It's been quieter since then. I wondered what he meant, for the words slipped out as if he could not help saying them. I've understood since. He meant that he did not hear that noise so often after the dog was out of the way. Perhaps he thought at first that it was old Bumble in the yard, howling at the moon. Though it's not that kind of noise, is it? Besides, I know what it is, if Luke didn't. It's only a noise, after all, and a noise never hurt anybody. Yet. But he was much more imaginative than I am. No doubt there really is something about this place that I don't understand. But when I don't understand a thing, I call it a phenomenon, and I don't take it for granted that it's going to kill me, as he did. I don't understand everything, by long odds, nor do you, nor does any man who has been to sea. We used to talk of tidal waves, for instance, and we could not account for them. Now we can account for them by calling them submarine earthquakes, and we branch off into 50 theories, any one which might make earthquakes quite comprehensible if only we knew what they are. I fell in with one of them once, and the inkstand flew straight up from the table against the ceiling of my cabin. The same thing happened to Captain Lucky. I dare say you've read about it in his wrinkles. Very good. If that sort of thing took place ashore, in this room for instance, a nervous person would talk about spirits and levitation and fifty things that mean nothing, instead of just quietly setting it down as a phenomenon 
that has not been explained yet. My view of that voice, you see? Besides, what is there to prove that Luke killed his wife? I would not even suggest such a thing to anyone but you. After all, there was nothing but the coincidence that poor little Mrs. Pratt died suddenly in her bed a few days after I told her that story at dinner. She was not the only woman who ever died like that. Luke got the doctor over from the next parish, and they agreed that she had died of something the matter with her heart. Why not? It's common enough. Of course, there was the ladle. I never told anyone about that, and it made me start when I found it in the cupboard in the bedroom. It was new, too, a little tinned iron ladle that had not been in the fire more than once or twice, and there was some lead in it that had been melted and stuck to the bottom of the bowl, all gray with hardened dross on it. But that proves nothing. A country doctor is generally a handy man who does everything for himself, and Luke may have had a dozen reasons for melting a little lead in a ladle. He was fond of sea fishing, for instance, and he may have cast a sinker for a nightline. Perhaps it was a weight for the hall clock or something like that. All the same, when I found it, I had a rather queer sensation, because it looked so much like the thing I had described when I told them the story. Do you understand? It affected me unpleasantly, and I threw it away. It's at the bottom of the sea a mile from the spit, and it will be jolly well rusted beyond recognizing if it's ever washed up the tide. You see, Luke must have bought it at the village years ago, for the man sells just such ladles still. I suppose they are used in cooking. In any case, there was no reason why an inquisitive housemaid should find such a thing lying about, with lead in it, and wonder what it was, and perhaps talk to the maid who heard me tell the story at dinner, for the girl married the plumber's son in the village, and may remember the whole thing. You understand me, don't you? Now that Luke Pratt is dead and gone, and lies buried beside his wife, with an honest man's tombstone at his head, I should not care to stir up anything that could hurt his memory. They are both dead, and their son too. There is trouble enough about Luke's death as it was. How? He was found dead on the beach one morning, and there was a coroner's inquest. There were marks on his throat, but he had not been robbed. The verdict was that he had come to his end, quote, by the hands or teeth of some person or animal unknown, unquote. For half the jury thought it might have been a big dog that had thrown him down and gripped his windpipe, though the skin of his throat was not broken. No one knew at what time he had gone out, nor where he had been. He was found lying on his back above high water mark, and an old cardboard bandbox that had belonged to his wife lay under his hand, open. The lid had fallen off. He seemed to have been carrying home a skull in the box. Doctors are fond of collecting such things. It had wooled out and lay near his head, and it was a remarkably fine skull, rather small 
beautifully shaped and very white, with perfect teeth. That is to say, the upper jaw was perfect, but there was no lower one at all when I first saw it. Yes, I found it when I came. You see, it was very white and polished, like a thing meant to be kept under a glass case. And the people did not know where it came from, nor what to do with it. So they put it back into the bandbox and set it on the shelf of the cupboard in the best bedroom. And, of course, they showed it to me when I took possession. I was taken down to the beach, too, to be shown the place where Luke was found. And the old fisherman explained just how he was lying and the skull beside him. The only point he could not explain was why the skull had rolled up the sloping sand toward Luke's head instead of rolling downhill to his feet. It did not seem odd to me at the time, but I have often thought of it since, for the place is rather steep. I'll take you there tomorrow if you like. I made a sort of cairn of stones there afterwards. When he fell down, or was thrown down, whichever happened, the bandbox struck the sand and the lid came off, and the thing came out and ought to have rolled down, but it didn't. It was close to his head, almost touching it, and turned with the face toward it. I say it didn't strike me as odd when the man told me, but I could not help thinking about it afterwards, again and again, till I saw a picture of it when I closed my eyes, and then I began to ask myself why the plaguey thing had rolled up instead of down and why it had stopped near Luke's head instead of anywhere else, a yard away, for instance. You naturally want to know what conclusion I reached, don't you? None that at all explained the rolling, at all events, but I got something else into my head, after a time, that made me feel downright uncomfortable. Oh, I don't mean as to anything supernatural. There may be ghosts, or there may not be. If there are, I'm not inclined to believe that they can hurt living people, except by frightening them. And, for my part, I would rather face any shape of ghost than a fog in the channel when it's crowded. No, what bothered me was just a foolish idea, that's all and I cannot tell how it began, nor what made it grow till it turned into a certainty. I was thinking about Luke and his poor wife one evening over my pipe and a dull book, when it occurred to me that the skull might possibly be hers, and I have never got rid of the thought since. You'll tell me there's no sense in it, no doubt, that Mrs. Pratt was buried like a Christian and is lying in the churchyard where they put her and that it's perfectly monstrous to suppose her husband kept her skull in her old bandbox in his bedroom. All the same, in the face of reason and common sense and probability, I'm convinced that he did. Doctors do all sorts of queer things that would make men like you and me feel creepy, and those are just the things that don't seem probable, nor logical, nor sensible to us. Then, don't you see? If it really was her skull, poor old woman, the only way of accounting for his having it 
is that he really killed her and did it in that way as the woman killed her husbands in the story and that he was afraid there might be an examination someday which would betray him. You see, I told that too and I believe it had really happened some 50 or 60 years ago. They dug up the three skulls, you know, and there was a small lump of lead rattling about in each one. That was what hanged the woman. Luke remembered that, I'm sure. I don't want to know what he did when he thought of it. My taste never ran in the direction of horrors, and I don't fancy you care for them either. Do you? No. If you did, you might supply what is wanting to the story. It must have been rather grim, eh? I wish I did not see the whole thing so distinctly, just as everything must have happened. He took it the night before she was buried, I'm sure, after the coffin had been shut and when the servant girl was asleep. I would bet anything that when he'd got it, he put something under the sheet in its place to fill up and look like it. What do you suppose he put there? under the sheet. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, cold hangs the midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.